Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 143 of Dunzo. It's me, Sissy Spacek. How are you? How's it going? I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you are um, surviving this hellfire of a media cycle that we have right now. I am recording this episode fresh off the heels of finding out that uh, Nastasia Schroeder and... Uh, Kristen Dote have been fired from Vanderpump Rules. You guys, welcome to episode 143 of Dunzo. It's me, Troy McEady. And uh, yeah, I can't even put into words how excited I am for today's episode. Um, This has been such a fun, welcomed, just joyous escape for me. I am, first of all, I'm recording this on the heels of finding out that Stasi Schroeder and Kristen Doty have been fired from Vanderpump Rules, and I'm trying to figure out why Jax Taylor is still employed. Like, I'm really, really confused as to who, what, where, when, and why Jax Taylor still has a fucking job. I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't get it. It's like, fire Stasi, fire Kristen, I really don't care. You guys know that I've basically, I've been done with Vanderpump Rules for a couple years now. This season, I officially really became done, and nothing says a show should end, like, more than half the cast being fired for uh, racist incidences of racism. I mean, like, my God, what other show can you think of that's on TV, that has been on TV at any point, has had to let go of, like, five people at one time because they're all fucking racist? It's just crazy. Anyway, I don't know. I don't want to fucking talk about Vanderpump Rules. I'm sick of talking about Vanderpump Rules. I'm sick of reading articles about it. I'm sick of hearing about what people have to... I I honestly just don't fucking care. Cancel Vanderpump Rules. The show... Give James Kennedy the spinoff that he's deserved for years. Especially now. What better time than right now (laughs) to film a James Kennedy and Raquel spinoff? They are literally the only people that anybody can stomach on that show at this point. I only want to watch James Kennedy content. I only want to listen to James Kennedy music. And I only want to kiss James Kennedy's soft, supple, beautiful lips and pinch that little dimple chin. Anyway, I'm really actually super excited about today's episode. I have to be honest with you. I came into this, obviously, like when you find out that we're talking about Whitney and Bobby and I'm splitting the episodes up this way. Anybody with any common sense knows that I'm going to obviously introduce the episodes through Whitney. You know, this is all going to be through the eyes of Whitney Houston. I'm expecting to kind of have to, you know, like dead weight Bobby Brown through this whole thing because I don't really care. But it's like I got to talk about Bobby. But I do care in the context of Whitney and Bobby. But I've got to be honest with you. Now I care a great deal. (laughs) I have become completely I don't even know how you would describe it I'm I'm I am ravenous for more Bobby Brown content and you will be too after I tell you all the things by the way you will be too I learned more today than I probably have 
God, I can't even think of the last time I learned this much about a celebrity in doing research. You know what I mean? Like really, really had my eyes opened to the importance of a person. <laughs> To a person, and I were talking about fucking Bobby Brown. I know it sounds crazy now, but in like you know, and you guys know the process. In an hour, we'll be on the same page, and you'll completely understand why I am now spellbound by Bobby Brown. Um, so yeah, this week we're gonna focus a little bit more on Bobby, just the Bobby of it all, and then we're gonna circle back to them as a couple and really get into their marriage and their relationship and Bobby Christina and all that stuff. Um. And it's funny because before, when I started my notes, like I wrote at the very top of my notes that Bobby Brown basically didn't have a career during the entirety of his relationship with Whitney Houston. And I was very wrong about that. Bobby Brown had a illustrious career that I realize I'm not even going to ruin it. I'm not even going to spoil it, but we're going to talk. Um... And I also, by the way, I think it's very easy to villainize Bobby Brown, given what we know of him, uh, given, you know, the perception that he's had in the media for decades and for good reason. But here on Dunzo Podcast, we like to look at people as full human beings, and Bobby Brown is no exception. I actually think, to be honest with you, Bobby is the perfect representation of what happens when you give a young, poor, black kid from the projects millions and millions of dollars and then sort of judge them or, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not, like, quick today, by the way. Like, I'm having, like, an, I'm not, like, my thoughts aren't coming to me very quickly and it could be because it's, like, 3.30 in the morning. I could just be sleepy. Um... But, like, to incriminate somebody like Bobby Brown for being, you know, an 11-year-old who was made famous and then given millions of dollars, um, you know, this, like, kid from the projects that had nobody watching out for him, it's like, of course, you know, it all it all kind of makes sense. And we're going to talk about New Edition a lot today. Uh, we're going to talk about Bobby's solo career. We're going to talk about the way Bobby grew up. We're going to talk about the way in which Bobby Brown started himself on this sort of self-destructive path at a very young age and how much his upbringing really, you know, had to do with how he ended up in life and where he ended up. And again, um, like I said last week, I'm not sure how long this is going to go or, you know, how these episodes are going to end up, but just expect lots of, uh, you know, some continued Whitney Houston content. Um... But right now, like I said, we're going to focus on Bobby. And I know, like, right now you're probably thinking, do I want to finish this? Do I care? Do I really care enough about Bobby Brown to listen to this for an hour? Trust me. Just, like, literally trust me. At this point, you should trust that I have good intentions for you. What am I saying tonight? This may be a little bit of an off night. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm very off in my head. (laughs) Nothing I'm saying makes any sense. Like, it's, like, my words sound like sims talk i'm also going to be touching on something today that you guys know i'm very obsessed with and that's boy band drama i love boy band drama i love girl group drama we've sort of beaten to death the trope of boy band members leaving in the style of justin timberlake to like set them on a journey of becoming like whatever version of michael jackson they'll be for their generation um 
But Bobby Brown's exit from New Edition is, it's just so unique and specific to Bobby. It's insane. And it's just so much more fascinating and interesting than most boy bands. Um, And I also think in the spirit of giving some shine to like, you know, just black artists who don't get the credit I think they deserve, I'd really like to talk about the fact that New Edition for some reason is never included in any of the like, best of boy band lists of the 80s uh you never really hear people mention new edition when they bring up new kids on the block which is very controversial and we'll get into or menudo um you know even though they have this huge massive cultural impact and sold millions and millions of records you just never really hear it and that's very sad to me because new edition is wildly influential in the music that you hear on the radio today, like aside from the fact that, you know, they get sampled all the time. Like it's so, it's crazy how often people sample new edition songs, but they're also massively influential for people like Bruno Mars and The Weeknd. And I don't know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people know that New Kids on the Block literally exists because of New Edition. And now I'm all fucking heated up about it and I hate New Kids on the Block. Like, the 40 years later we'll talk um bobby was born and raised in the projects in boston his mom was a teacher and his dad was a construction worker and bobby very famously grew up in the roxbury orchard uh park projects which was known at the time as being one of the toughest neighborhoods in the area it's a neighborhood that you know if you like google the name of this housing projects like it brings up all these really crazy think pieces about the crime that came from there and just how sort of infamous it is and it's a neighborhood that you know as I'm sure you would expect was ravaged by the crack epidemic in the 80s and Whitney and Bobby were later involved in a murder that took place in his neighborhood when they went back to visit in the mid 90s which we'll get into probably next week Um, and it feels weird to jump straight into Bobby's career so quickly. Like we're going to start talking about new edition, but he started new edition when he was like 11. So it just sort of makes sense. Now, new edition was like right before my time. Like I was born the year new edition, I think broke up, but I, you know, I know a pretty good amount about new edition from listening to the adults around me talk about them when I was little. And interestingly enough, the band formed because Bobby Brown had such intense stage fright, which if you know anything about Bobby Brown, that goes against everything he stands for as a human person. His whole gig is that he's so confident and, you know, whatever, that he'll go up on stage and hip thrust and grab his crotch and like sweat on you and make you rub his abs and like, he's, his whole performance style is, like, showboating and being over-the-top and extra. But apparently, when Bobby was a kid, he had this extreme stage fright. And during a local show, he was, like, doing a talent show. Um, he was so nervous that he asked Ricky and Mike to join him on stage, which is how the band formed. So the original members were Ricky Bell, uh, Michael uh, Bivens, Bobby Brown, Ronnie DeVoe, Ralph, uh, I think you pronounce his last name, Trevant. I've only just ever called him Ralph, which is like, whose name is Ralph, first of all? Um, And then they later added Johnny Gill to replace Bobby, which sort of set them in this, like, 
that was like their teenage years, you know, their like more mature teenage phase. But the Bobby years were very much like bubblegum sweet boys singing in the most shrill, uh, like glass piercing tones I think I've ever heard. Um, and New Edition had a pretty typical like rags to riches origin story in the world of boy bands. And by that, I mean they worked their fucking asses off and had all of their money stolen for years. So I use the term riches very loosely. But after doing a bunch of local talent shows in the Boston area, they signed a deal with Streetwise Records in 1979. And they released their first album, Candy Girl, in March of 83. And it became a massive, massive hit. It's, you know... It still has so much ignored cultural relevance. Like, that song is, like, such a classic 80s bop candy girl. It's iconic. Um, And New Edition had this extreme, you know, overnight success. It's a tale as old as time. That very specific boy band fame where, like, all of a sudden you can't go out in public. And you can't, you know, go, you can't go to public places anymore. And... You know, you have girls just sort of mindlessly screaming at you and chasing you and, like, ripping at your clothes. Like, they all had to be pulled out of school because the girls were just, like, following them all over school and, like, cornering them and basically, like, assaulting them. Like, they were being cornered in, like, bathrooms and shit and the girls were, like, ripping at their clothes and, you know, stealing shit from them so that they would have to, like, interact with them. Just They were being tortured. And by by the way, they're 12 at this point. They're like 12 and 13. And New Edition's unsung legacy, which I think is so fascinating, is that they broke into the music industry at the same time rap was being invented, basically. And they were, I, I mean, based on what I've read, I feel like they were the first They could have been one of, but I feel like they were the first really, really successful group to incorporate hip-hop and R&B the way they did it. And they were so successful at it that it's like just sort of the norm now, but when they did it, it 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 was revolutionary, and it's very specific to them. Whenever you hear a rap song that has, you know, like an R&B influence or an R&B background or whatever, it is directly... It directly stems from New Edition. And in the 80s, hip-hop was a direct threat to R&B because the two were so closely intertwined, but also, like, not at all. And because Black artists had so few options, you saw this sort of shift in the music industry that caused a lot of internal panic. And I read this really interesting Rolling Stone article that came out a couple years ago. I think it was, like, 2017 about New Edition's impact on music and how frustrating it must be for them to see their influence around, like all around them constantly, but never, ever get credited for it. It says, It's no coincidence that Luther Vandross and Anita Baker, singers of Near Peerless Grace and Prince and Michael Jackson, masters of pre-pop pop, released their best albums before hip-hop's first golden age in the late 1980s. Shrewd young singers like the five who ended up in the group New Edition took the impact of rap in stride, embracing hip-hop on their very first single in 1983, Candy Girl. 
Because of their aesthetic fluidity, this quintet from Roxbury, Massachusetts persisted for more than three decades, quietly carrying on a remarkable dynasty. And nearly every notable R&B singer to emerge after new, new Edition has followed their cross-pollinating example. Despite their weighty achievements, the group has largely been passed over by the canonizers who still favor pre-hip-hop R&B. Even within the pantheon of R&B vocal groups, New Edition is overlooked for the same reason. The list includes ensembles from the heyday of Motown, maybe the Impressions, and a few others. Noted critic Nelson George summarized his initial reaction to the group as nonchalant dismissal, calling them nothing but a novelty act. But George soon changes his evaluation in 1991, he wrote that New Edition begins this still young decade as one of black music's most important institutions. To gauge New Edition's impact is turned on the radio. Their sound is all over Bruno Mars's 24 Karat Magic album. The backing vocals during sec the second hook of the title track are pure glorious Johnny Gill. On the weekend's latest number one hit, Starboy, the singer brags that he has to reach back into the past to find any music worthy of his attention. No competition, I don't really listen, he sings. I'm in the blue Malsana bumping new edition. Erica Badu paid a heavy tribute to one of the group's early singles, Mr. Telephone Man, on her latest mixtape. I also read this really interesting article from Boston Magazine about Boston's weird relationship with new edition and how they just sort of don't claim them, even though the band has always repped being from Boston so hard. Like... New Edition loves being from Boston. They're one of they're from one of the most infamous housing projects in history, and Boston has absolutely no time for them. Um, in the in the article, this person wrote, "Lately, there's been a bloom of new appreciation for New Edition across the country. Last year, the lauded BET miniseries, The New Edition Story, rehashed the band's breakups, makeups, and onstage fights." The cable network is following it up with the Bobby Brown story coming in September. A few years ago, Vibe recounted the, uh, the reasons why New Edition should be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But while they remain national icons, they seem to consistently get low billing in their hometown. Bostonians love to fawn over the city's illustrious rock and roll history. But how many know that New Edition changed the face of pop music, launched a thousand boy bands, and might just be Boston's most important pop export of all time? It's about time these hometown heroes get their due. It's almost shocking that, less than a decade after they were the talk of Roxbury, someone could grow up in the next neighborhood over and not know the members of New Edition had walked the same streets. Arguably, it reflects the priorities of the tastemakers who tell us what's important here. Historically, Boston has had a rather uh, pale complexion. It's not necessarily intentional. People talk about what they see around them, and there's a lot of rock acts that started in Boston. Aerosmith, sure, but also the Cars, the Modern Lovers, the Pixies, the Lemonheads, Mission of Burma, and Boston, obviously. I just almost said, of course, and obviously, and I just said, of obviously. Boston's Built on a Marsh quipped a globe retrospective on the city's pop history, but it sure feels founded on a rock. But the weight of our rock and roll history can stream roll the other things that were going on here. And I just find that to be so fucking fascinating. I find it to be endlessly fascinating. Like this, I mean, we're going to talk more about how like w culture defining uh, New Edition was, but like just that alone. New Edition was the first music act in history to successfully 
merge hip hop and R&B. That is literally our entire, that's, that is the music. That is all of the music industry. And there's still be people are still begging to get them inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Boston won't even claim them. Like, that's crazy to me. So in 1983, New Edition went on their first tour and in their VH1 Behind the Music episode, they talked about, you know, the tour bus pulling up and the projects and, you know, their entire neighborhood, like crowding around to send them off to follow their dreams and you know, at 12 years old, these boys had become like hometown heroes, the ones who literally got out and are being whisked away to Hollywood to become rich and famous. And they toured all over the United States and had this totally out of body experience as, you know, 12 year old boys who are like, I mean, these are boys who started a band at the park. They're 11 and like 12 years old. They're kids. These are little boys that started a band on their own. And, you know, I've read a lot about like, um, like I read some quotes from people who grew up in the projects with them and they were like, you know, all of us had like a music act at the time. Like all of us were in a group. We were all in some kind of like rap group or like a doo-wop group or whatever. Like we all sang and everybody wanted, everybody wanted to be, an entertainer. So it wasn't like it was uncommon that, uh, you know, the ki- that kids would like start a music group. But they lived, ate and breathed this group, you know? Anybody that, any like quote that I've read about them from that time from anybody who knew them when they were that age is that they were just like these obsessively driven little boys that would, you know, put themselves through these like grueling uh, rehearsals and like learn steps and they would learn choreography and, and they taught themselves to harmonize and they were just so so obsessively driven and wanted this themselves so bad and I just think it's like you know whenever you hear about these pop groups that are these especially like any sort of kid that makes it in the music industry right when they're like you know 13 years old or whatever 15 16 it's always them sort of like being taken and sort of manipulated and having all of these ideas and things kind of projected onto them. This is a group of 12-year-old boys that were like, this is what we want. We know what we want. We know what kind of artists we are. We like R&B and we like rap music and that's what we want to do together. We can beatbox, we can dance. Like, it's just, it's mind-blowing to me. And the even more surreal thing is that after they went on this, you know, giant tour, like, you know, easily at 12 years old, the biggest thing they had ever done in their lives, they were dropped back off in the projects by the same bus that picked them up and they had absolutely nothing to show for it. But the silver lining was that, you know, it was time for them to get paid. Now, mind you, these are kids. They're 12. They're from the projects. The only people reading these contracts are their parents. And they obviously have no idea what the fuck is going on or what there's, you know, who knows how to just read an entertainment contract, right? So they open up their first paycheck. They're so excited. They're like, we are literally about to move out of the fucking projects. We are mo- we are 12 years old and we are moving our families out of the projects. We don't even know what that means, but we're fucking rich now. They open these checks 
and they are a dollar fifty. They were paid a dollar fifty. Their manager gave them the old Lou Pearlman and told them they were paying for wardrobe and for travel and for hotels and food, etc. And their parents eventually banded together and got them out of these fucked up contracts. They ended up signing new contracts with a new management team who promised to do all sorts of wacky things like, you know, pay them <laughs> and uh, move them out of their housing projects. You know what I mean? Um, not send them on a like, countrywide tour and then drop them off back in a crime infested project community with a dollar paycheck. Like I'm so, I'm not, I don't even, I, I don't know. That is just a really overwhelming for me. At 12, it's one thing to fuck over like a 17 year old in the music industry. It's terrible, but it's like, okay, Jesus, 12, 12 year old, bo- poor boys. Um, so they sign this new contract and they, this is like their moment of like redemption, right? They're going to be rescued. Finally, they're going to start getting paid and you will never, ever, ever, ever guess what they were told they needed to do (laughs) in order to, uh, in order to sign this contract and in order to become successful stars. If you guessed change everything about themselves to appeal to a white audience I want you to stick around after class because I have a special little treat for you because you're right. They were told all of that, you know, innovative music that you guys have been creating, you know, creating a new genre of pop music. We're going to put a stop to that. They got, they basically were dressed up in these like pastel vests and sweaters and bow ties and they were doo-wopping and they got their hair permed so that they could like, comb it back and have little pompadours and you know their music became increasingly like very bubblegum which they hated especially Bobby but they were finally making a little money you know so the payoff was like this is annoying as fuck but we're not poor right now um they were also able to for the first time live a real in quotes rock star lifestyle by the way at like 13 They were hooking up with hundreds of girls. They were having orgies. They were like experimenting with drugs. And the only people there to supervise them were bodyguards that were being paid by them. And I'm just so, I mean, you guys know, like I'm endlessly fascinated by the long-term effects of of, of children with lots of money and no consequences like to be 12 and have access to anything your psychotic little brain desires and nobody to help you understand why you should or shouldn't do something when you aren't even old enough to know what it's like to pay a fucking bill is just so unimaginable it's really terrifying you know when i picture myself at like you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and the way that I viewed the world and then having to carry that way of thinking throughout my adult life because I've not been taught any any skills 
any life skills, nothing, it sends a chill down my spine. Imagine viewing the world right now the way you viewed it at 12 and being totally stunted in like almost every way possible. And the even worse thing is that after so long, it's like, what can you do? Like, it can't be undone, you know? You can't be taught morals as a fully fledged adult person. You can't be taught like compassion and sympathy and humility at 30. So you're just fucked, you know? Like, you look at somebody like Bobby Brown and it's like, well, yeah, like, you're fucked. Like, your brain is fucked up for the rest of your life because you became really famous at 11 and you were on a world, uh, a countrywide tour with no supervision for like a year at 11. The bodyguards in their Behind the Music episode said that like parents would basically offer them hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars to have sex with their daughters. Like they'd be like, can I pay you to let my daughter go in the hotel room and lose her virginity? <laughs> Like, the music industry is just so fucking crazy to me. I mean, we'll talk about that in a second because I have a whole thing written down. But, like, the music industry specifically is wild. Um, In the mid-80s, you saw a shift in the group where the other members were starting to resent the lead singer, Ralph, because he was favored. Um, When they formed, he was the group's answer to Michael Jackson in the Jackson 5. But as they got older, there was no real reason for him to continue being the in quotes lead of the group especially considering their music style had totally changed like they weren't doing their like beatboxing rapping singing thing anymore they were just doo-wopping so it's like why are you the lead he was like he was the justin to their in sync basically you know but the difference was that <laughs> their second lead vocalist bobby brown wasn't as understanding as jc chaze to just let to let Justin showboat. Um, Bobby hated knowing that the fans were screaming, you know, this guy's name and not his. So he started retaliating, as Bobby Brown is known to do. And his first retaliation just so happened to be caught on film. In December of 1984, <laughs> at one of their shows... Bobby gifted the world with his very first onstage hip thrust. In a moment of rebellion, he unbuttoned his uh, his suit jacket and thrusted his penis in the faces of all the girls sitting front row, which would go on to become Bobby's signature performance style, penis thrusting. And from that point, it just sort of escalated. Bobby refused to continue being placed in the background um, more importantly, he refused to be ignored by the audience. So he started like ripping his shirt off on stage and making the girls rub his sweaty abs. And he would, this is my favorite thing that he would do. So Bobby would do this thing where when the, when the band was about to exit the stage, as one does, he would not exit. He would just like let them leave and he would stay up on stage. <laughs> he would stay up on stage and start performing like 15 minute long versions of their songs alone by himself cueing the band like run, running a full production in an auditorium because he was that much of a sort of self-centered narcissist unapologetically um so he'd be like 
cueing the drummer and like cueing the guitarist to just keep playing. Like it was like his, it was his moment every single time and that the band was like his opening act. And I just, I honestly just love the image of, even though I've, I was obviously wasn't there, but the image of the band, like doing their doo-wop, whatever, like crooning and snapping and giving you barbershop quartet fantasy and Bobby just thrusting his dick into everybody's face and sweating profusely with no shirt on is just so hilarious to me. Like, it's so funny. Um, and let's just also take a moment to assess the fact that they now have, you know, several platinum records and they still have absolutely no money. They have also found out at this point, which is, this is also very important, that during the height of their success with Bobby still as a member of the band, because of, of course he eventually left, they were tricked into signing a production deal which their former tour manager lovingly referred to as a legal slave contract. So, you know, they thought they were signing with MCA Records, but it turns out MCA Records tricked these young idiots into signing with an entirely different label called Jump and Shoop Productions that they also sort of owned. And they spent most of their careers, this is what's fucked up, they spent most of their careers trying to understand these contracts that they were being told to sign. They never really had any like grasp on what they were signing or what, you know, they were doing and they were just sort of doing what they were told to to do because they didn't know any better and they were happy to be there, you know? They were poor. They were from the projects in Boston and they're now like touring the world you know and opening for people like madonna so like yeah like they were just signing shit and <laughs> not reading it and they didn't really have like lawyers that were looking out for them or anybody in their corner so and also by the way they became famous at 11 like i can't read really, i can't stress that enough they became famous at 11 years old and I know that I've beaten this to death, but it honestly, it's like, I can't not bring it up. It just further proves my point that the industry loves kids because they can do anything they want to them. Literally anything. Imagine being, first of all, imagine watching a bunch of hopeful 11-year-old black boys from a gang-infested neighborhood signed deals that you in your heart, like in your your spirit, you know that these deals are going to in some way ruin their lives and leave them in horrendous debt. And you know that they're signing these contracts because they think it will save them and their families and pull them out of the fucking, the fucking projects. And these are boys who had active parents in their lives. It's not like, you know what I mean? Like their parents are the reason that they got out of their first shitty contract. Like they had active parents in their lives, but their parents were so wedged out of everything that was going on that there was nobody like looking out for them or protecting them. And this also brings up a point that I make passively all the time, but I never really sink my teeth into. The differences between the music industry and the acting world 
when it comes to child stars is like so wildly different to me. And like we all know that terrible. Of course, I mean, look, we all know that terrible things happen to kids on TV and to kids on film sets. That's undeniable. Like goes without without question. I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I think singers are literally. It's like they travel all over the world on tour buses and in planes with unlimited amounts of money, and they just get to do whatever the fuck they want. They just get to do anything they want all over the world. You know what I mean? Britney Spears in Europe at 16 years old, like literally listening to Euro dance music and having orgies with women, just doing whatever the fuck they want. When you look at actors, even though they're constantly surrounded by sharks, it's like at least they have like this structured thing that they do every day. Like they go to a set and they act and then they go to a fake school in a a closet and you know, they work with the same people every day on a project until it's done. And then when that's done, they do another thing for a long period of time that can take a year. And you know what I mean? It's not like, um, it's not traveling from city to city all over the world every single night on a bus with only people on the bus that you're paying to be there and being able to party in every city you go to. It's like wild. Each member of the band borrowed $100,000 from MCA to get them out of the debt they didn't even know that they were in. And now that they were indebted to their label, their label, by the way, that tricked them into a weird, shady contract to steal their money. Um, now that they're indebted to them, all of everything they do at this point now has to be given to them. So their tour money, their album sales, all of that stuff now has to be given to the label because they are paying back $100,000 each. It's wild. I mean, it just, I can't say it enough. It's fucking crazy. And at the same time, Bobby Brown, Bobby, was extremely resentful of the fact that they had to perform. I mean, they were now literally slaves and had to perform this bubblegum pop music. And, you know, that their sound had shifted so much from where they started you know, they were introduced to the world as this innovative, like, new frontier for black music. And the first band to mix rap and R&B so successfully, which is insane, that it created a new music genre. And now they're singing fucking malt shop music about carrying your sweetheart's books home from school and, like, kissing under the bleachers. So I actually understand Bobby Brown's frustration. Like, I get it. And, you know, that meant he was becoming increasingly disgruntled and difficult to work with. He was unprofessional and mean, and he was bullying the other members of the band. Um, You know, and to add insult to injury, now he's rich. So not only is he a complete fucking piece of shit because he's never... Since 11 years old, he's been, you know, hearing people scream his name and he's never had to really suffer any consequences for how he treats people. Now he's wealthy. Now Bobby Brown is rich and he's showing up everywhere in minks with no shirt and like ashing cigars on people. He's in full like Richie Rich dickwad douchebag fantasy. Okay, you guys, we are approaching my favorite part of this episode. The reason that I wanted to do it, I hate that you had to wait until the end, but if you did, you're a real one. 
we're going to talk now about New Kids on the Block. Because when talking about New Edition, you simply must mention New Kids on the Block. And you simply must mention the fact that New Kids on the Block emerged and purposely stole New Edition's fan base and ideas and music. New Kids on the Block stole their careers from New Edition. And New Kids on the Block gets all of the cultural praise that New Edition worked for. (laughs) And to pour salt on the wound, the old manager from New Edition is now managing New Kids on the Block. And like, take a minute to think about their name. Like, they're literally called New Kids on the Block. They are Their name is describing them as being the replacements for a band that's already existed. They're the New Kids on the Block. They are the new, new edition. But they're the new edition that has a giant, massive budget and merchandising deals and posters and endorsements and private planes and world tours and all this shit. The writer from that Boston Magazine article also said, uh, 40 years after their careers began, I would argue that members of New Edition had as much influence on pop music as any act in Boston. They were the band that Starr then molded his next group after, shaping Boston heartthrobs new kids on the block in the image of New Edition, though their pipes and dance moves were not quite as good. And I just got to be honest, like, it's impossible to deny how timely it feels to talk about something like this. It's crazy. And it's funny because it feels so different to talk about it now than it would have maybe like three weeks ago. Now that the world is in this place of being, you know, extremely conscious of systematic racism, this is... I mean, it couldn't be more of a prime example. And I really, I really do um, appreciate any of you that are listening right now because I can kind of tell when, like, I know when episodes that I post are not going to be like, like big, giant, crazy episodes that everybody's going to care about. And I would expect that, like, when a lot of people found out (laughs) when seeing me post this, that I was talking mostly about Bobby Brown today and not really so much about Whitney, that they didn't give it a chance or like didn't bother to listen because they thought it wouldn't be as important or entertaining. But I'm so happy that you're listening to this because this was such a profound moment of realization for me as well, you know, and just like, you know, like New Edition doesn't get the credit or praise they 1000% deserve, of course, Because they are a bunch of little black boys from a predominantly white location with a lot of really important white shit that those people like to celebrate. All of those bands I mentioned earlier, I mean, who doesn't know that most of those bands are from Boston? But I would guess most people don't know that New Edition and that Bobby Brown is like, like reps Boston hard. You know what I mean? New Kids on the Block is known and beloved as a Boston-based band. And any New Kids on the Block fan knows that they're from Boston. And Boston is happy 
to scream it from the rooftops that they, you know, that New Kids from the Block is from there. But not the band that they stole their concept, music, and manager from. And not the band that they were able to profit off of while the band itself was getting $1 paychecks and performing on borrowed money like slaves. <laughs> but performing, by the way, doo-wop pop music. That's after they invented a genre of music that we st- that is now basically our whole radio. It is such a tragic story. It's such a tragic sort of untold story. The fact that this band has to be, you know, they have to beg to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I bet most people would wonder why. I bet most people, including myself, by the way, before today. That's, I mean, that's how fucked up this is. I'm going to include myself in that. In the mid to late 80s, it was decided that Bobby Brown should be kicked out of New Edition. But the story surrounding it is complicated folklore. And who you choose to believe, I guess, is up to you. Bobby has said in interviews many times that he was kicked out of the group because um, because he stopped being able to perform and dance as well. And that he heard that he was kicked out through other people and not the band themselves, even though they also wanted him gone. So it was like an uncle of a friend of one of the members' brother, uh, the brother's girlfriend told her dad and the dad told his so-and-so. And and he, he found out like 20 people removed from the band that he was being kicked out of the band. You know, he was told that he was too much of a liability and that he was basically just, he was a headache. Like he was a nightmare. And the group was told that if they didn't get rid of Bobby, that they wouldn't be allowed to continue with their careers which is hilarious to me. I mean, it's like, how manipulative is this fucking record label? First of all, you guys are working right now as slaves. Like, let's just, you are working as slaves. You're performing and on a tour and not being paid for it because you owe the label money. So like, what? Like, of course they're going to let you perform. You're making them a bunch of money and they don't have to pay you. And they tricked you into thinking that it's okay. And uh, he was also starting to smoke so much weed that he wasn't able to perform as well. His voice was giving out. He stopped showing up to their performances. Um, They had gotten to the point that they were like fist fighting before and after the stage. And according to a New York Post article, it all came to a head during a show when Bobby realized on stage that his solo had been shortened in case he didn't show up or couldn't sing so he freaked out and threw a microphone at Michael Bev- uh, Michael Bivens head on stage in front of everybody. So immediately after leaving New Edition, Bobby signed another contract with MCA Records, which is insane to me. Apparently they promised him a solo deal if he decided to leave New Edition, which I'm sure did nothing to help his psychotic ego while he was still in the band, knowing that he could just leave whenever he wanted and that he could treat them any way he wanted and that it didn't matter because no matter what, he was going to get a record deal and he was going to have a solo career. 
His first solo album, King of King of the Stage, King of Stage, uh, <laughs> was produced by L.A. Reid and Babyface, and it was released in 1986 and did absolutely nothing. Um, at that particular point, I don't think that they knew what they wanted to do with Bobby. I don't think they knew what kind of artist he should be. You know, he was the first, you know, he was the first member to officially break out of the, like, really goody two-shoes thing that was happening with New Edition. He broke them of that because they were a, they were basically a Christian rock band at a certain point. Like they were, they were really good Christians, good Christians, good Christian boys. I mean, they were as sweet as fucking sugar, gumdrops, milkshakes, all of that stuff. Just sweet, sweet, innocent music, doo music. And Bobby thrusting his dick on stage was like, sort of the thing that broke them of that good boy image. And of course, when Bobby left the group, they hired somebody else and and then they sort of transitioned into being teenagers and like singing about sex and stuff or whatever. Um, But I don't think they had any idea of what they wanted to do with Bobby. You know, he was still sort of pigeon held by that good boy thing because even though he was dick thrusting on stage, he was still a part of New Edition and they were still really good boys, and that's what the world expected of him too, you know, so that's what he did. It wasn't until 1988, with the release of his second album, Don't Be Cruel, that we would get the full-fledged, hip-thrusting, box-cut, lip-licking, you know, dripping in sweat, 80s sex symbol that we all know, Mr. Bobby Brown, Mr. Bob A. Don't Be Cruel is Bobby Brown's legacy album. It features the singles that he will be known for forever, My Prerogative and Every Little Step. It also introduced the world to, well, I wouldn't say that it introduced the world to New Jack Swing, but it was like that Bobby's Don't Be Cruel album sort of helped decide that New Jack Swing was going to be the sound. Like that was the sound, the one and only, you know what I mean? Um, In an album review that I read on Wikipedia, it said, Don't Be Cruel was to Bobby Brown what Control was to Janet Jackson, a tougher, more aggressive project that shed his bubblegum image altogether and brought him into a new artistic and commercial plateau. With my prerogative and the title song, Brown became a leader of New Jack Swing, a forceful high-tech blend of traditional soul um, singing and rap hip-hop. Don't Be Cruel debuted at number 74 on Billboard 200 and went to number one six months later, which is wild. So the album was being rotated for six straight months back in the, remember like back in the day when that was a normal thing, like a person would just release singles for like an entire year from the same album. Oh, the good old days. The album had a six week run being number one and became the best selling album of 1989 it's gone on to sell like 12 million copies. It still does like, like, I mean, people buy Bobby Brown's old music still. And it closed out the 80s in such a massive way. And it really helped decide, like I said, the direction of R&B slash hip hop in the early 90s. Um, and in 1990, Bobby won the Grammy for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. And normally it's like, you know, I list an artist's uh, accolades because I just think that they're genuinely interesting. But for Bobby Brown, I'm mentioning them specifically to either remind people 
or inform people that Bobby Brown was at one time more than like a disgruntled D-list drug addict in the media. He was a sex symbol (laughs) and he was an innovator. He was a trailblazer in music and he was unimaginably successful. And I was too young to experience the whole like Bobby Brown thing. So I didn't grow up with this version of Bobby. I grew up with 90s Bobby, like the Bobby who got arrested all the time, the Bobby who the media would call a crackhead and a coke addict, the Bobby who was blamed for getting Whitney Houston addicted to drugs, the Bobby who like undeniably, you know, was very jealous of Whitney Houston and forced her to dim her light so his would shine brighter. And for that reason, I've always had a lot of deep-rooted resentment for Bobby Brown. But being immersed in Bobby Brown content for two days and watching Bobby Brown interviews from 1989, it's like, I get it. I get it. I get it. Whitney, and I get it. Every girl screaming in that audience, and like, I get it. I understand why Bobby Brown was like the sexy bad boy of R&B. I get it now. 1989 Bobby would 100%, I mean, obviously Bobby would ruin my credit. I think that goes without saying. 1989 Bobby, I think, would actually take loans out in my name, not tell me, and then blame me for being upset about it. And I would end up apologizing. That's 1989 Bobby Brown energy. Um... Now, where we left off with Whitney and Bobby, they had met at the Soul Train Music Awards in 1989, uh, which is exactly where we are. And if you recall, Whitney was booed that night because the black audience felt that she had turned her back on them because of Clive Davis. You guys know the whole thing. Whitney told Rolling Stone about meeting Bobby. He was hot. He was on fire. And some friends of mine were sitting, (laughs) sitting behind him. I was hugging them and we were laughing and I kept hitting Bobby on the back of his head on purpose. I leaned over and said, Bobby, I'm so sorry. And he turned back and looked at me and said, yeah, well, just don't let it happen again. And then I was like, oh, this guy doesn't like me. Well, I always get curious when somebody doesn't like me. So I had to figure out why. And I'm going to leave it on that note. Next week, we are going to talk about Whitney and Bobby as a couple. You know, we have to lay the foundation. We have to lay the foundation because can you imagine how differently you would think of Whitney how differently I would think of Whitney and Bobby if I didn't lay this foundation my god fuck I've I've known Whitney my whole life and I think completely differently about her after last week's episode and I like knew all that stuff already kind (laughs) of and even still it's like having it like beaten to your brain like that for an hour straight is pretty intense but next week, like I said, we are going to really, really get into the relationship, into, into Whitney and Bobby's, um, into their marriage, because they got married only a couple years after meeting, and we're going to talk about that wedding. I can't wait to post wedding photos. We're going to talk about the birth of Bobby Christina. We're going to talk about the introduction of drugs. We're going to talk about the bodyguard soundtrack. We're going to talk about... Ugh, everything. We're going to talk about the Star Spangled Banner. I'm really excited. And what you guys don't know because of the magic of editing is that my voice is so hoarse and swollen for some reason after uh, recording this episode that I've had to pause it about 
97 times to cough like Mama June. So, I am going to stop recording. I adore you guys. I love you so much. I cannot wait for next week. I'm so excited. Thank you for giving this episode the time of day. Um, And, uh, yeah, I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew.